Section 11 of Marty and a Voyage Thither, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Marty and a Voyage Thither, Volume 2, by Herman Melville. Chapters 51 through 55. Chapter 51, in which Azaghetti seems to use Babalanja for mouthpiece. Porfiro far astern, the spirits of the company rose. Once again old Mohi serenely upbraided and rebraided his beard. And sitting turquoise on his mat, my lord Medea smoking his gonfalon, diverted himself with the wild songs of Yumi, the wild chronicles of Mohi, or the still wilder speculations of Babalanja now and then, as from pitcher to pitcher, pouring royal old wine down his soul. Among other things, Medea, who at times turned over Babalanja for an encyclopedia, however unreliable, demanded information upon the subject of neap-tides and their alleged slavish vassalage to the moon. When true to his cyclopediatic nature, Babalanja quoted from a still older and better authority than himself, in brief, from no other than Eternal Bardiana. It seems that that worthy essayist had discussed the whole matter in a chapter thus headed, On Seeing into Mysteries Through Millstones. And throughout his disquisitions, he evinced such a profundity of research, though delivered in a style somewhat equivocal, that the company were much struck by the erudition displayed. Babalanja, that Bardiana of yours must have been a wonderful student, said Medea, after a pause. No doubt he consumed whole thickets of rushlights. Not so, my lord. Patience, patience, philosophers, said Bardiana. Blow out your tapers, bolt not your dinners, take time, wisdom will be plenty soon. A notable hint. Why not follow it, Babalanja? Because, my lord, I have overtaken it and passed on. True to your nature, Babalanja, you stay nowhere. Aye, keep moving is my motto. But speaking of hard students, did my lord ever hear of Midney, the ontologist and entomologist? No. Then, my lord, you shall hear of him now. Midney was of opinion that daylight was vulgar good enough for tarot-planting and travelling, but wholly unadapted to the sublime ends of study. He toiled by night, from sunset to sunrise, poring over the works of the old logicans. Like most philosophers, Midney was an amiable man, but one thing invariably put him out. He read in the woods by glow-worm light, insect in hand, tracing over his pages line by line, but glow-worms burn not long and in the midst of some calm intricate thought at some imminent comma the insect often expired and midney groped for a meaning upon such an occasion ho ho he cried but for one instant of sunlight to see my way to a period but sunlight there was none so midney sprang to his feet and parchment under arm raced about among the sloughs and bogs for another glow-worm Often making a rapid descent with his turban, he thought he had caged a prize, but nay. Again he tried, yet with no better success. 
Nevertheless, at last he secured one. But hardly had he read three lines by its light, when out it went. Again and again this occurred. And thus he forever went halting and stumbling through his studies, and plunging through his quagmires after a glim. At this ridiculous tale, one of our silliest paddlers burst into uncontrollable mirth. Offended at which breach of decorum, Medea sharply rebuked him. But he protested he could not help laughing. Again Medea was about to reprimand him, when Babalanja begged leave to interfere. My lord, he is not to blame. Mark how earnestly he struggles to suppress his mirth. But he cannot. It has often been the same with myself, and many a time I have not only vainly sought to check my laughter, but at some recitals I have both laughed and cried. But can opposite emotions be simultaneous in one being? No. I wanted to weep, but my body wanted to smile, and between us we almost choked. My lord Medea, this man's body laughs, not the man himself. But his body is his own, Babalanja, and he should have it under better control. The common error, my lord. Our souls belong to our bodies, not our bodies to our souls. For which has the care of the other? Which keeps house? Which looks after the replenishing of the aorta and oracles, and stores away the secretions? Which toils and ticks while the other sleeps? Which is ever giving timely hints and elderly warnings? Which is the most authoritative? Our bodies, surely. At a hint, you must move. At a notice to quit, you depart. Simpletons show us that a body can get along almost without a soul. But a soul getting along without a body, we have no tangible and indisputable proof. My lord, the wisest of us breathe involuntarily. And how many millions there are who live from day to day by the incessant operation of subtle processes in them, of which they know nothing and care less? Little wean they of vessels lacteal and lymphatic, of arteries femoral and temporal, of pericranium or pericardium, lymph, chyle, fibrin, albumen, iron in the blood, and pudding in the head. They live by the charity of their bodies, to which they are but butlers. I say, my lord, our bodies are our betters. A soul so simple that it prefers evil to good is lodged in a frame whose minutest action is full of unsearchable wisdom. Knowing this superiority of theirs, our bodies are inclined to be willful, our beards grow in spite of us, and, as everyone knows, they sometimes grow on dead men. You mortals are alive, then, when you are dead, Babalanja. No, my lord, but our beards survive us. An ingenious distinction. Go on, philosopher. Without bodies, my lord, we Mardians would be minus our strongest motive passions, those which, in some way or other, root under our every action. Hence, without bodies, we must be something else than we essentially are. Wherefore, that saying imputed to Alma, and which by his very followers is deemed the most hard to believe of all his instructions, and the most at variance with all preconceived notions of immortality, I, Babalanja, account the most reasonable of his doctrinal teachings. It is this, that at the last day 
every man shall rise in the flesh. Pray, Babalanja, talk not of resurrections to a demigod. Then let me rehearse a story, my lord. You will find it in the very merry marvellings of the improvisitor Quiddy, and a quaint book it is. Fugal fee is its finis. Fugal fee, fugal foe, fugal fogle orum. That wild look in his eye again, murmured Yumi. Proceed, Azageti, said Medea. The philosopher Grando had a sovereign contempt for his carcass. Often he picked a quarrel with it, and always was flying out in its disparagement. Out upon you, you beggarly body! You clog, drug, drag, you keep me from flying. I could get along better without you. Out upon you, I say, you vile pantry, cellar, sink, sewer, abominable body. What vile thing are you not? And think you, beggar, to have the upper hand of me? Make a leg to that man, if you dare, without my permission. This smell is intolerable. But turn from it, if you can, unless I give the word. Bolt this yam. It is done. Carry me across yon field. Off we go. Stop. It's a dead halt. There, I've trained you enough for today. Now, sirrah, crouch down in the shade and be quiet. I'm rested. So, here's for a stroll and a reverie homeward. Up, carcass, and march. So the carcass demurely rose and paced, and the philosopher meditated. He was intent upon squaring the circle, but bump he came against a bow. How now, clod-hopping bumpkin? You would take advantage of my reveries, would you? But I'll be even with you. And seizing a cudgel, he laid across his shoulders with right good will. But one of his backhanded thwacks injured his spinal cord. The philosopher dropped, but presently came to. Adzooks, I'll bend or break you. Up, up, and I'll run you home for this. But wonderful to tell, his legs refused to budge. All sensation had left them. But a huge wasp, happening to sting his foot, not him, for he felt it not, the leg incontinently sprang into the air, and of itself cut all manner of capers. Be still down with you. But the leg refused. My arms are still loyal, thought Grando, and with them he at last managed to confine his refractory member. But all commands, volitions, and persuasions were as naught to induce his limbs to carry him home. It was a solitary place, and five days after, Grando, the philosopher, was found dead under a tree. Ha, ha, laughed Medea. Azageti as full as merry as ever. But, my lord, continued Babalanja, some creatures have still more perverse bodies than Grando's. In the fables of Ridden Diabola, this is to be found. A fresh water polyp despising its marine existence, longed to live upon air. But all it could do, its tentacles or arms still continued to cram its stomach. By a sudden preternatural impulse, however, the polyp at last turned itself inside out, supposing that after such a proceeding it would have no gastronomic interior. But its body proved ventricle outside as well as in. Again its arms went to work, 
food was tossed in and digestion continued is the literal part of that a fact asked mohi true as truth said babbalanja the polyp will live turned inside out somewhat curious certainly said medea but methinks babbalanja that somewhere i have heard something about organic functions so called which may account for the phenomena you mention and i have heard too methinks of what are called reflex actions of the nerves which duly considered might deprive of its strangeness that story of yours concerning grando and his body mere substitutions of sounds for inexplicable meanings my lord in some things science cajoles us now what is undeniable of the polyp some physiologists analogically maintain with regard to us mardians that for as much as the lining of our interiors is nothing more than a continuation of the epidermis or scarf-skin therefore that in a remote age we too must have been turned wrong side out an hypothesis which indirectly might account for our moral perversities and also for that otherwise nonsensical term the coat of the stomach for originally it must have been a surtout instead of an inner garment pray azagetti said medea are you not a fool one of a jolly company my lord but some creatures besides wearing their surtouts within sport their skeletons without witness the lobster and turtle who alive study their own anatomies azagetti you are a zany pardon my lord said mohi i think him more of a lobster it's hard telling his jaws from his claws yes braidbeard i am a lobster a mackerel anything you please but my ancestors were kangaroos not monkeys as old bodo erroneously opined my idea is more susceptible of demonstration than his among the deepest discovered land fossils the relics of kangaroos are discernible but no relics of men hence there were no giants in those days but on the contrary kangaroos and those kangaroos formed the first edition of mankind since revised and corrected what has become of our finnesses or tails then asked mohi wriggling in his seat the old question mohi but where are the tails of the tadpoles after their gradual metamorphosis into frogs have frogs any tails old man our tails mohi were worn off by the process of civilization especially at the period when our fathers began to adopt the sitting posture the fundamental evidence of all civilization for neither apes nor savages can be said to sit invariably they squat on their hams among barbarous tribes benches and settles are unknown but my lord medea as your liege and loving subject i cannot sufficiently deplore the deprivation of your royal tail that stiff and vertebrated member as we find it in those rustic kinsmen we have disowned would have been useful as a supplement to your royal legs and whereas my good lord is now fain to totter on two stanchions were he only a kangaroo like the monarchs of old the majesty of odo would be dignified by standing firm on a tripod a very witty conceit but have a care azagetti your theory applies not to me babalanja said mohi you must be the last of the kangaroos i am mohi but the old-fashioned pouch or purse of your grandams hinted medea my lord i take it that must have been transferred 
Nowadays, our sex carries the purse. Ha, <laughs> ha. My lord, why this mirth? Let us be serious. Although man is no longer a kangaroo, he may be said to be an inferior species of plant. Plants proper are perhaps insensible of the circulation of their sap. We mortals are physically unconscious of the circulation of the blood, and for many ages were not even aware of the fact. Plants know nothing of their interiors. Three score years and ten we trundle about ours and never get a peep at them. Plants stand on their stalks. We stalk on our legs. No plant flourishes over its dead root. Dead in the grave, man lives no longer above ground. Plants die without food. So we. And now for the difference. Plants elegantly inhale nourishment without looking it up. Like lords, they stand still and are served and though green, never suffer from the colic, whereas we mortals must forage all round for our food. We cram our insides, and are loaded down with odious sacs and intestines. Plants make love and multiply, but excel us in all amorous enticements, wooing and winning by soft pollens and essences. Plants abide in one place and live. We must travel or die. Plants flourish without us, we must perish without them. Enough, Azagetti, cried Medea. Open not thy lips till tomorrow. Chapter 52 The Charming Yumi Sings The morrow came, and three abreast, with snorting prows, we raced along, our mat-sails panting to the breeze. All present partook of the life of the air, and unanimously Yumi was called upon for a song. The canoes were passing a long white reef, sparkling with shells like a jeweler's case, and thus Yumi sang in the same old strain as of yore, beginning aloud, where he had left off in his soul. Her sweet, sweet mouth, the peach-pearl shell, red-edged its lips that softly swell, just oped to speak with blushing cheek, that fisherman with lonely spear on the reef kin, and lift to ear its voice to hear. Soft sighing south. Like this, like this, the rosy kiss. That maiden's mouth. A shell, a shell, a vocal shell, song dreaming in its inmost dell. Her bosom, two buds half-blown they tell, a little valley between perfuming, that roves away, deserting the day, the day of her eyes illuming, that roves away o'er slope and fell, till a soft, soft meadow becomes the dell. Thus far, old Mohi had been wriggling about in his seat, twitching his beard, and at every couplet looking up expectantly, as if he desired the company to think that he was counting upon that line as the last. But now, starting to his feet, he exclaimed, Hold, minstrel, thy muse's drapery is becoming disordered. No more. Then no more it shall be, said Yumi. But you have lost a glorious sequel. Chapter 53 They Draw Nigh Unto Land In good time, after many days' sailing, we snuffed the land from afar and came to a great country full of inland mountains, north and south, stretching far out of sight. All hail Columbo, cried Yumi. 
coasting by a portion of it, which Mohi called Kanida, a province of King Bellows, we perceived the groves rocking in the wind, their flexible boughs bending like bows, and the leaves flying forth and darkening the landscape like flocks of pigeons. Those groves must soon fall, said Mohi. Not so, said Babalanja. My lord, as these violent gusts are formed by the hostile meeting of two currents, one from over the lagoon, the other from land, they may be taken as significant of the occasional variances between Canida and Dominora. Aye, said Medea, and as Mohi hints, the breeze from Dominora must soon overthrow the groves of Canida. Not if the land breeze holds, my lord. One breeze off blows another home. Stand up and gaze. From cape to cape, this whole main we see is young and froward. And far southward, past this Canida and Vivenza, are haughty, overbearing streams, which at their mouths dam back the ocean, and long refuse to mix their freshness with the foreign brine. So bold, so strong, so bent on hurling off aggression is this brave main Colombo. Last sought, last found, Marty's estate so long kept back. Pray, Oro, it be not squandered foolishly. Here lie plantations, held in fee by stout hearts and arms, and boundless fields that may be had for seeing. Here your foes are forests, struck down with bloodless maces. Ho, Marty's poor, and Marty's strong, ye who starve or beg, seventh sons who slave for earth's first-born. Here is your home, predestinated yours. Come over, empire founders, fathers of the wedded tribes to come. Abject now, illustrious evermore. Ho, sinew, brawn, and thigh. A very fine invocation, said Medea. Now, Babalanja, be seated, and tell us whether Dominora and the kings of Porfido do not own some small portion of this great continent, which just now you poetically pronounced as the spoil of any vagabonds who may choose to settle therein. Is not Canida Dominora's? And was not Vivenza once Dominora's also? And what Vivenza now is, Canida soon must be. I speak not, my lord, as wishful of what I say, but simply as foreknowing it. The thing must come. Vain for Dominora to claim allegiance from all the progeny she spawns. As well might the old patriarch of the flood reappear and claim the right of rule over all mankind as descended from the loins of his three roving sons. Tis the old law. The East peoples the West, the West the East. Flux and reflux. And time may come, after the rise and fall of nations yet unborn, that risen from its future ashes, Porfido shall be the promised land, and from her surplus hordes, Colombo people it. Still coasting on, next day we came to Vivenza, and as Medea desired to land first at a point midway between its extremities, in order to behold the convocation of chiefs supposed to be assembled at this season, we held on our way, till we gained a lofty ridge jutting out into the lagoon, a bastion to the neighboring land. It terminated in a lofty natural arch of solid trap. Billows beat against its base, but above waved an inviting copse, wherein was revealed an open temple of canes, 
containing only one image, that of a helmeted female, the tutelar deity of Vivenza. The canoes drew near. Lo, what inscription is that? cried Medea. There, chiseled over the arch. Studying those immense hieroglyphics a while, antiquarian Mohi, still eyeing them, said slowly, In this republican land all men are born free and equal. False, said Medea. And how long stay they so, said Babalanja. But look lower, old man, cried Medea. Methinks there's a small hieroglyphic or two hidden away in yonder angle. Interpret them, old man. After much screwing of his eyes, for those characters were very minute, Champollion Mohi thus spoke. Except the tribe of Hamel. That nullifies the other, cried Medea. Ah, ye Republicans. It seems to have been added for a postscript, rejoined Braidbeard, screwing his eyes again. Perhaps so, said Babalanja, but some wag must have done it. Shooting through the arch, we rapidly gained the beach. Chapter 54 They Visit the Great Central Temple of Vivenza The throng that greeted us upon landing were exceedingly boisterous. Whence came ye, they cried, whither bound? Saw ye ever such a land as this? Is it not a great and extensive republic? Pray, observe how tall we are. Just feel of our thighs. Are we not a glorious people? Here, feel of our beards. Look round, look round. Be not afraid. Behold those palms. Swear now that this land surpasses all others. Old Bellows Mountains are molehills to ours. His rivers, rills, his empires, villages, his palm trees, shrubs. True, said Babalanja, but great Oro must have had some hand in making your mountains and streams. Would ye have been as great in a desert? Where is your king? asked Medea, drawing himself up in his robe and cocking his crown. Ha ha, my fine fellow, we are all kings here. Royalty breathes in the common air. But come on, come on, let us show you our great temple of freedom. And so saying, irreverently grasping his sacred arm, they conducted us toward a lofty structure planted upon a bold hill and supported by thirty pillars of palm, four quite green, as if recently added, and beyond these an almost interminable vacancy, as if all the palms in Marty were at some future time to aid in upholding that fabric. Upon the summit of the temple was a staff, and as we drew nigh, a man with a collar round his neck and the red marks of stripes upon his back was just in the act of hoisting a tapa standard, correspondingly striped. Other collared menials were going in and out of the temple. Near the porch stood an image like that on top of the arch we had seen. Upon its pedestal were pasted certain hieroglyphical notices according to Mohi, offering rewards for missing men, so many hands high. Entering the temple, we beheld an amphitheatrical space, in the middle of which a great fire was burning. Around it were many chiefs, robed in long togas, and presenting strange contrasts in their style of tattooing. Some were sociably laughing and chatting, 
others diligently making excavations between their teeth with slivers of bamboo, or turning their heads into mills, or grinding up leaves and ejecting their juices. Some were busily inserting the down of a thistle into their ears, several stood erect, intent upon maintaining striking attitudes, their javelins tragically crossed upon their chests. They would have looked very imposing, were it not that in rear their vesture was sadly disordered. Others, with swelling fronts, seemed chiefly indebted to their dinners for their dignity. Many were nodding and napping, and here and there were sundry, indefatigable worthies making a great show of imperious and indispensable business, sedulously folding banana leaves into scrolls and recklessly placing them into the hands of little boys in gay turbans and trim little girdles, who thereupon fled as if with salvation for the dying. It was a crowded scene. The dusky chiefs here and there grouped together, and their fantastic tattooings, showing like the carved work on quaint old chimney-stacks, seen from afar. But one of their number overtopped all the rest. As when, drawing nigh unto old Rome, amid the crowd of sculptured columns and gables, St. Peter's grand dome soars far aloft, serene in the upper air so showed one calm grand forehead among those of this mob of chieftains that head was saturnina's gaul and spurzheim saw you ever such a brow poised like an avalanche under the shadow of a forest woe betide the devoted valleys below lavatar behold those lips like mystic scrolls those eyes like panthers caves at the base of popocatapetl by my right hand saturnina cried babbalanja but thou wert made in the image of thy maker yet have i beheld men to the eye as commanding as thou and surmounted by heads globe-like as thine who never had thy caliber we must measure brains not heads my lord else the sperm-whale with his ton of an occiput would transcend us all nearby were arched ways leading to subterranean places whence issued a savory steam and an extraordinary clattering of calabashes and smacking of lips as if something were being eaten down there by the fattest of fat fellows with the heartiest of appetites and the most irresistible of relishes it was a quaffing guzzling gobbling noise peeping down we beheld a company breasted up against a board groaning under numerous viands in the middle of all was a mighty great gourd yellow as gold and jolly round like a pumpkin in october and so big it must have grown in the sun thence flowed a tide of red wine and before it stood plenty of paunches being filled therewith like portly stone jars at a fountain melancholy to tell before that fine flood of old wine and among those portly old topers was a lean man who occasionally ducked in his bill he looked like an ibis standing in the Nile at flood-tide, among a tongue-lapping herd of hippopotami. They were jolly as the jolliest, and laughed so uproariously that their hemispheres all quivered and shook like vast provinces in an earthquake. Ha! 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 How they laughed and they roared! A deaf man might have heard them, and no milk could have soured within a forty-two-pounder ball shot of that place. Now, the smell of good things is no very bad thing in itself. It is the savor of good things beyond. Proof positive 
of a glorious good meal. So, snuffing up those zephyrs from Araby the blessed, those boisterous gales blowing from out the mouths of baked boars, stuffed with breadfruit, bananas, and sage, we would fain have gone down and partaken. But this could not be, for we were told that those worthies below were a club in secret conclave, very busy in settling certain weighty state affairs upon a solid basis. They were all chiefs of immense capacity. How many gallons, there was no finding out. Be sure now, a most riotous noise came up from those catacombs, which seemed full of the ghosts of fat Lamberts, and this uproar it was that heightened the den above ground. But heedless of all, in the midst of the amphitheatre stood a tall, gaunt warrior, ferociously tattooed, with a beak like a buzzard, long dusty locks, and his hands full of headless arrows. He was laboring under violent paroxysms, three benevolent individuals essaying to hold him. But repeatedly breaking loose, he burst anew into his delirium, while, with an absence of sympathy, distressing to behold, the rest of the assembly seemed wholly engrossed with themselves, nor did they appear to care how soon the unfortunate lunatic might demolish himself by his frantic proceedings. Toward one side of the amphitheatrical space, perched high upon an elevated daze, sat a white-headed old man with a tomahawk in his hand, earnestly engaged in overseeing the tumult, though not a word did he say. Occasionally, however, he was regarded by those present with a mysterious sort of deference, and when they chanced to pass between him and the crazy man, they invariably did so in a stooping position, probably to elude the atmospheric grape and canister continually flying from the mouth of the lunatic. "'What mob is this?' cried Medea. "'Tis the Grand Council of Avenza,' cried a bystander. "'Hear ye not, Alano?' And he pointed to the lunatic. Now coming close to Alano, we found that, with incredible volubility, he was addressing the assembly upon some all-absorbing subject connected with King Bello and his presumed encroachments toward the northwest of Avenza. One hand smiting his hip, and the other his head, the lunatic thus proceeded, roaring like a wild beast, and beating the air like a windmill. I have said it. The thunder is flashing, the lightning is crashing. Already there's an earthquake in Dominora. Full soon will old Bello discover that his diabolical machinations against this ineffable land must soon come to naught. Who dare not declare that we are not invincible? I repeat it, we are. Ha, ha! Audacious bellow must bite the dust. Hair by hair we will trail his gory gray beard at the end of our spears. Ha, ha! I grow hoarse. But would mine were a voice like the wild bulls of Bullerum, that I might be heard from one end of this great and gorgeous land to its farthest zenith, I to the uttermost diameter of its circumference. Awake, O Vivenza, the signs of the times are portentous, nay, extraordinary. I hesitate not to add peculiar. Up, up, let us not descend to the bathos when we should soar to the climax. Does not all Marty wink and look on? Is the great sun itself a frigid spectator? Then let us double up our mandibles to the deadly encounter. Methinks I see it now. Old Bello is crafty, and his oath is recorded to obliterate us. 
across this wide lagoon he casts his serpent eyes wets his insatiate bill mumbles his barbarous tusks licks his forked tongues and who knows when we shall have the shark in our midst yet be not deceived for though as yet bello has forborne molesting us openly his emissaries are at work his infernal sappers and miners and wet nurses and midwives and grave diggers are busy his canoe yards are all in commotion in navies his forests are being launched upon the wave and ere long typhoons zephyrs white squalls balmy breezes hurricanes and besoms will be raging round us his philippic concluded alano was conducted from the place and being now quite exhausted cold cobblestones were applied to his temples and he was treated to a bath in a stream this chieftain it seems was from a distant western valley called hio hio one of the largest and most fertile in vivenza though but recently settled its inhabitants and those of the vales adjoining a right sturdy set of fellows were accounted the most dogmatically democratic and ultra of all the tribes in vivenza ever seeking to push on their brethren to the uttermost and especially were they bitter against bello but they were a fine young tribe nevertheless like strong new wine they worked violently in becoming clear time perhaps would make them all right an interval of greater uproar than ever now ensued during which with his tomahawk the white-headed old man repeatedly thumped and pounded the seat where he sat apparently to augment the den though he looked anxious to suppress it at last tiring of his posture he whispered in the ear of a chief his friend who approaching a portly warrior present prevailed upon him to rise and address the assembly and no sooner did this one do so than the whole convocation dispersed as if to their yams and with a grin the little old man leaped from his seat and stretched his legs on a mat the fire was now extinguished and the temple deserted chapter fifty five wherein babalanja comments upon the speech of alano as we lingered in the precincts of the temple after all others had departed sundry comments were made upon what we had seen and having remarked the hostility of the lunatic orator toward dominora babalanja thus addressed medea my lord i am constrained to believe that all vivenza cannot be of the same mind with the grandiloquent chief from hio hio nevertheless i imagine that between dominora and this land there exists at bottom a feeling akin to animosity which is not yet wholly extinguished though but the smouldering embers of a once raging fire my lord you may call it poetry if you will but there are nations in mardi that to others stand in the relation of sons to sires thus with dominora and vivenza and though its majority attained vivenza is now its own master yet should it not fail in a reverential respect for its parent in man or nation old age is honourable and a boy however tall should never take his sire by the beard and though dominora did indeed ill merit vivenza's esteem yet by abstaining from criminations vivenza should ever merit its own and if in time to come which oro forbid vivenza must needs go to battle with king bello let vivenza first cross the old veteran's spear with all possible courtesy on the other hand my lord 
King Bello should never forget that whatever be glorious in Vivenza redounds to himself, and as some gallant old lord proudly measures the brawn and stature of his son, and joys to view in his noble young lineaments the likeness of his own, bethinking him that when at last laid in his tomb, he will yet survive in the long strong life of his child, the worthy inheritor of his valor and renown. Even so should King Bello regard the generous promise of this young Vivenza of his own lusty begetting. My lord, behold these two states. Of all nations in the archipelago, they alone are one in blood. Dominora is the last and greatest Anak of old times. Vivenza, the foremost and goodliest stripling of the present. One is full of the past, the other brims with the future. Ah! did this sire's old heart but beat to free thoughts and back his bold son all marty would go down before them and high oro may have ordained for them a career little divined by the mass methinks that as vivenza will never cause old bello to weep for his son so vivenza will not this many a long year be called to weep over the grave of its sire and though King Bello may yet lay aside his old-fashioned cocked hat of a crown, and comply with the plain costume of the times, yet will his frame remain sturdy as of yore, and equally grace any habiliments he may don. And those who say Dominora is old and worn out, may very possibly err. For if, as a nation, Dominora be old, her present generation is full as young as the youths in any land under the sun." then ho worthy twain each worthy the other join hands on the instant and weld them together lo the past is a prophet be the future its prophecy fulfilled end of section eleven recording by james k white chula vista